Our sermon text this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. This morning we conclude our series celebrating Advent by looking again at another miracle story from the Gospel of Luke. I'd like to start by reading to you the first four verses of the book of Luke. He gives us his purpose for writing the Gospel, so let me read that to you. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." So Luke, much like a careful historian, has compiled a narrative of eyewitness accounts, including what happened in a little town called Nain, that we might have certainty concerning the things we have been taught. Who is this Jesus and what has he come to do? Luke wants to bring clarity to these questions, to provide assurance, and to provoke faith in Jesus Christ. Gabriel tells Mary in chapter 1, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So this Jesus is none other than the Messiah of Old Testament hopes. He is the King, the Savior of the world, God in the flesh. Yet this isn't immediately clear to everyone. The the disciples are slow to see. Kings are perplexed. The people wonder. If you look at the context of our passage, you see right after this story, John the Baptist, he wrestles with the question himself. He asks in verse 19, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? You see in verse 49, those at the dinner table of the Pharisee ask themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. As Tom has been explaining to us, the miracles of Christ are meant to display who he is and what his kingdom is like. And they're intended to compel and nourish faith in himself. So Jesus was not a mere wonder worker performing signs to entertain the crowds like some kind of circus hero. His miracles were calculated to reveal himself and the nature of his kingdom that people might put their trust in him. Well, thus far in Luke's account, he has healed a man possessed by a demon. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. He's cleansed a leper. He's healed the paralytic. He's healed the man with a withered hand. Chapter six, starting in verse 17, we have a good summary statement. 
And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Jump to verse 19. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. You can't just yawn and shrug your shoulders at such a man. And lukewarm Christians had better find their pulse quickening when they see him in action. Here we have God in the flesh and he is upending the natural order of death and decay caused by sin. Where we expected to find death, he's bringing life. So what have you done with Jesus Christ? He will be reckoned with. He cannot be ignored. For those of us here who love him, stories like our passage this morning ought to make us love him all the more and increase our own certainty regarding who he is. Wouldn't that be a great gift this Christmas? Jesus Christ is to be enjoyed and cherished and esteemed and revered, and reveled in, and gloried in, and worshipped. And with that as our aim, we get to go to a little town in Galilee called Nain. It's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible except here. It's a little window we get to look through to witness another shaft of glory from our Savior. Luke shows us two things. Number one, Jesus has compassion on the needy. And secondly, Jesus has power to raise the dead. Let's first look at his compassion. Chapter 7, Luke showcases Jesus' concern for all kinds of people. We see a centurion, a widow, and a prostitute. And they are, they are all in desperate need. In the case of the centurion and the woman of the city, as Luke calls her, uh, in their need, they seek Jesus out and they're commended for their faith. In the case of the widow, she was just burying her son, and Jesus comes to her. And so the compassion and grace of God are especially on display in this passage. I've already mentioned the crowds that flocked to Jesus to hear his teaching, uh, to be healed of their diseases. He's just healed the centurion's servant in Capernaum. There was a crowd following him there. It's probably many of the same folks following him again to Nain. Verse 11, a great crowd went with him. We see at the very same time that Jesus is drawing near to the gate of the town, there's another crowd coming out, and it's a funeral procession. Of course, the timing of his arrival is not coincidental. Uh, Jesus has complete command of this situation. He didn't arrive when this man was ill. No, this guy is already on his way to the grave. Jesus knows precisely what he's going to do, and hundreds, perhaps thousands of people are going to witness it. It's like a scene in so many movies where the truth about someone or something has been concealed for so long, and finally when all the critical players are there to witness it, the truth comes out, and there's a collective gasp. Uh, it's overwhelming, just almost disbelief. So God is orchestrating what will be a great display of his glory with two large crowds converging. But there, in the midst of it all, is a lone woman. She has lost her husband, and now she has lost her only son. And at that time, a woman in such a situation would often be left destitute. She cannot inherit the land. That would be the role of her son. He's, he's now gone. 
Unless some relatives take her in, we're not sure what's going to happen to her. The crowd coming out of Nain is with her, Luke tells us. So the community there is grieving with this woman. So the description there in verse 12 evokes deep emotion. Jesus, too, is moved by the scene. If you look at verse 13, just read it slowly to yourself as I read it out loud. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. So do you see how concerned and close and personal Jesus is with this woman? I, I could stack up as many adjectives as I could think of to describe the compassion of Christ, but I would still fall short. He is fully aware of this woman's pain. Just those four little words, the Lord saw her. He sees her. He feels compassion in his heart towards her. He speaks to her. Jesus sees. He feels. He speaks. It reminded me when the Israelites were languishing as slaves in Egypt and they cried out to God for help, Exodus chapter 2, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God new. Friends, your heart should melt at such a description of God, not harden. A melted heart would be the response of faith. But no doubt there are days in our lives like verse 12 where you might be tempted to think of God not as a caring father, but as a monster. Unfeeling, unflinching, distant, and cold, and ruthless, Indifferent, and to see God this way is an ancient temptation because right from the beginning in the garden, the devil sought to bring doubt into our minds regarding the character of God. Did did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Has he only put you there to mock you by denying you the fruit? And then you will not surely die. So in effect, he's planting the thought in Eve's mind that God cannot be completely trusted. He's holding something from you. He doesn't really mean to bless you. He's not good, Eve. And perhaps that's precisely where you are this morning in this Christmas season, fighting to trust the goodness of God. And and I cannot be harsh with you. Because the painful trials of this life are common to us all. You you may not be a widow. You may not have ever lost a child. But you can still see yourself walking in that funeral procession. Grieved and cast down and bewildered by the dark trials of this life. But friends, I plead with you. Trust his steadfast love for you. He has stretched out his arms for you and bound himself to you by an unbreakable covenant in his own blood, which means he will not, he cannot abandon you. You are his. God set his love on you before the foundation of the world. God was loving you before he sent Jesus to die for you. That's why he sent Jesus to die for you, because he loves you so. Has that sunk into your heart? 
The Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote this, let all know that none are fitter for comfort than those that think themselves furthest off. For those of us here still lingering on the outside, considering the claims of Christ, perhaps feeling too unworthy to be even noticed by such a Savior, consider his free invitation to you. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus has come for the needy, for the abandoned, for the defenseless. He has come for those wrecked by sin. He's come for me. Consider what the angel told Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So his very name means the Lord saves. So it stands to reason if you feel full and complete and self-sufficient and resourceful and self-reliant, basically a good chap, I'm a good person, well, Jesus will be of no benefit to you. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus moves towards this bereaved woman to comfort her in her agony. In this moment of tenderness, Jesus is giving us a foretaste of his coming kingdom. When God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, Revelation 21, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the kind of kingdom Jesus is bringing. Even in heaven, we will be conscious of our need. And Jesus will meet every one of them. The leaves of the tree of life will be for the healing of the nations. And he will set us down to his table and he will serve us and his glory will be our light and forever and ever the glory of his grace towards us will be on display. And so what happened in Nain 2,000 years ago was an inbreaking of the coming kingdom. If you can just imagine the scene with your mind's eye, the, the converging crowds outside the city gate, the, the weeping and wailing of the mourners. The sun is likely fading because the Jews buried their dead towards the, the end of the day. Usually the same day the death occurred. But there will be no funeral today, for the Lord of life has come to town, and he has power over death. Now, how would we comfort this woman? We, we could do all we could, wouldn't we? we? We would move towards her, we would put our arms around her, we would weep with her, but none of us could bring back her son. Only God can raise the dead. Jesus first goes to comfort the grieving, but then his compassion moves decisively into a realm where only he can go, and the rest of us can only watch. And if you're a Christian, your heart should swell with admiration and wonder and joy at what he's about to do. You should say, that's my king. I'm with that guy. Can you imagine being a bystander? Maybe, maybe perhaps the only believer there in the crowd, knowing what you know about Jesus. And you'd say... He knows my name. I know his name. We're kind of on first name basis. I want you to watch what he's about to do. Watch what my king's about to do. And he came up and touched the beer. You don't drink that, okay, kids? That's a plank of wood, okay? I'm glad the ESV used the word beer. This is not a coffin with a lid. The, the, the body is very much on display. 
Just a plank of wood that's being carried. It's wrapped, but you can see the body there. Jesus puts his hand on it, which according to the law would make him unclean. Even being in the same tent where someone died would make you unclean. Clearly, Jesus is not concerned with this. Here is the one who declares, I have the keys to death and Hades. If you've got the keys to something, that means you have authority over it. So Jesus will not be made unclean by the dead. No, he's going to raise the dead. And he does so with his own word. Young man, I say to you, arise. And Luke furnishes us with a concise but conclusive description that the man indeed comes back to life. He sat up and started talking. Can you just imagine the recounting of this event in the surrounding region afterwards? Witnesses telling their friends and neighbors what had happened. I I was helping carry a man to burial. And this man Jesus comes up and he starts talking to the body, which I first found rather offensive and strange. But then he said, arise. And the man came back to life. And your friend says, wait, 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 what do you mean he came back to life? And you grab him by the shoulders and you say, he sat up and started talking. Luke gives us unvarnished eyewitness testimony. It's short, it's to the point, it's unembellished. This is just what happened. Just as it, he records it just as it happened. The man sat up and started talking. We were talking about this in sermon review on, on Thursdays, the staff Tom said, I wonder what he said. (laughs) Who knows? Luke says, fear seized them all. Why? Well, the dead are not supposed to move or to speak, number one, right? Secondly, and more importantly, who then is this man that raises the dead with a word? Do you remember the disciples' reaction to Jesus when he calmed the storm? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So no doubt, the miracle itself is absolutely staggering. It's jaw-dropping. But what does that then mean about the one who performed it? That's where your attention should go. And as your eyes are locked on him in that moment, it would be entirely appropriate to be seized by fear. And don't you just love him in this scene? Jesus is both tender-hearted and a terror. There ought to be a kind of inner shrinking before him, an inability to cope with his presence, an impulse to lay prostrate. And I'm not sure if the people here had that kind of heart response to Jesus. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I just want to say it is good and right to fear God. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called The Joy of Fearing God. That is a great title. If that doesn't make any sense to you at all, I would just say go home and think about it for a long while. It would be good for your soul. For the people of Nain, Jesus is blowing their categories of reality. You're supposed to die and that's it. But here's one who simply bids the dead to rise and they obey him. Who is this and what might he do next? I bet you those pallbearers just dropped the dude and ran. Just, I'm gone. We don't don't know that, but we do know Jesus gave him to his mother, the text says. And that line, he gave him to his mother, 
That is the exact phrase in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the story of the prophet Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. 1 Kings chapter 17, that widow too had lost her son, but through Elijah, God raises him from the dead. The text says Elijah delivered him to his mother. That's the exact phrase in Greek that Luke uses in verse 15. Another very similar story happens in 2 Kings chapter 4 with the prophet Elisha and the Shunammite woman. Again, her son had died. But through Elisha, God raises him from the dead. And note this, the city of Shunam is very close, hundreds of years prior, very close to this city of Nain. So there are some remarkable similarities in these stories, but also some significant differences. Elijah, he had to pray, stretch himself upon the body of the boy three times, and then he comes back to life. Elisha tells his servant, you go, put your staff on the body of the boy, on the face of the boy. Well, nothing happens. Elisha has to come himself. He comes, he prays, he stretches himself upon the body of the boy. He gets up, he walks back and forth in the house. He goes back again, stretches himself upon the body. The boy sneezes seven times and then comes back to life. In the town of Nain, Jesus simply says, arise, and it's done. The theologian Sinclair Ferguson points out that this is an example of a repeated pattern in the scriptures that, quote, comes to its fullness in the person of Jesus Christ, the great prophet who heals not merely through delegated authority from God, but on his own authority. Not without rituals or prayers, but with a simple word of power. Here is the great God and Savior of Israel in the flesh. Verse 16, the people cry out, a great prophet has arisen among us. Yeah, you got that right. I don't think they fully grasp, though, who they're dealing with. Jesus is the one the prophets prophesied about. He's the one they're longing to see. In the Gospels, when people refer to Jesus as a prophet, it's usually said by people who are trying to figure out who he really is. And then we hear the people say, God has visited his people. Oh, he has. But the visitor is God himself in the flesh, incarnate. Again, the question from John the Baptist, are you the one who is to come? Verse 22, Jesus says, tell John, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Okay, maybe you're asking, why does Jesus seem so crystal clear about his identity with some folks, but with others, he seems to leave the question hanging in the air? Why does he sometimes want his miracles concealed, but this time he wants it on full display? You know, this is going to spread throughout the whole region. You know, what's, what's the deal? Why can't Jesus be more consistent? Jesus knows what he's doing. He, he is in command of his own self-disclosure. He will not be crowned by the people as a political messiah to overthrow Rome. If that's what you want to do with Jesus, you've missed him. And he's not merely a prophet or a teacher. You know, today Muslims believe that about Jesus. No, Jesus is revealed as the very Son of God to those who have ears to hear, to those who have faith. John chapter 10. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. 
The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. Do you hear him speaking to you this morning? The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In the town of Nain, God had visited his people, but still, by and large, his own people would miss him. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem in chapter 19. He says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. If you do not know this Jesus I'm talking about, know this, Christ came to reverse the curse of death by becoming a curse for us. Though he was sinless, he willingly placed himself under the dark tide of God's wrath and he became a lifeless corpse like this young man lying there on the bier. Jesus died so you could be spared, so you could be saved, so you could live. And he saves all those who cling to him by faith, all those who know they're needy and empty and destitute just like this widow you're a Christian, just stop and think about it for a moment. There was a day when that was you lying there on the plank. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were cut off from God. You had no hope. And I don't care how pleasant and courteous and moral and church going you might have been on the outside. You were a child of wrath like the rest of mankind until Jesus came to you and gave you spiritual life. You are not a Christian because you made a decision one day to be one. No, God came to you and he raised you from the dead. When Jesus calls forth the dead, they rise. There's no deliberation. So friends, behold what he has done for you in his first advent, what he will do for you. When he comes again, the day is coming when Jesus will return and plant his kingly scepter over your earthly grave, and he will say, my son, my daughter, I say to you, arise. And unlike the young man in Nain, you will never face death again. You will receive an incorruptible body like Christ, for he himself has been raised from the dead. That's what this story foreshadows, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection to come. At the end of the age, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, meaning he is representative of the whole harvest of souls yet to be raised upon his return. Romans 6, 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So you serve a master who not only died for you, but one who resurrected for you. And friends, that means, that means everything's gonna be okay. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, everything's gonna be fine. Everything sad will come untrue. He's gonna set everything right. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. 
So brothers and sisters, this Christmas, have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Keep trusting him, trust his heart. Christ has compassion on you and he will lead you safely through the valley of the shadow of death because he has power over it. He has conquered it and he's coming again. Let's take a moment now to reflect on these things and I'll pray for us.